I still remember not understanding what was all the smoke in, in the room at the concert and being passed a tray that I thought was hors d'oeuvres. I believe it might have been a mushroom of some sort. I'm Nick Harcourt, and this is The Sound of Success, a podcast about the music that has shaped the lives of the money, business, and tech world's most fascinating people. Join us each week as we hear about the songs and bands that left their imprint on the folks who shape finance. I'm Nick Harcourt. Welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, a podcast where we talk with movers and shakers in the financial world about... Music. Yeah, I know. Weird, right? On this episode, we welcome John Fee, who is a Senior Vice President and Head of Global Marketing at Salesforce.org. He and his team are responsible for bringing the story of Salesforce's customer and program success to life through digital brand and physical experiences. Before we get into anything else, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the last year at Salesforce, how you guys have adapted and pivoted to working through the pandemic and how's 2021 treating you guys? Welcome. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Nick, for, for having me. The last year at Salesforce it feels like it was multiple years because we adapted so much. We do a lot of events at Salesforce, especially within salesforce.org to engage the nonprofit community as well as the global education community. Those events were typically in person. And so one monster pivot for us was how do we flip those events into a virtual setting, completely reimagine them and use the new virtual capabilities to reach even more customers. We also all had to get used to working from home, which has you know, now been going on for, I kind of quit counting after 14 months. Yeah, I think we're up to 16 now. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about your record label, because I know when we first uh, were talking about speaking with you, I was really fascinated to see that you have a record label called Parks and Records, which I love, an indie record label in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Parks Parks and Records, which I always like to share, was was the name we chose before the, the show in the States, Parks and Rec, which is also a great show, by the way, if you haven't watched it. But Parks and Records is the, is the byproduct of, um, of an assignment that I had when I was uh, in business school at the University of San Francisco studying to get my, my master's. And the assignment was to build a business plan for a business that you would want to bring to market. And I had written similar business plans in the past. One that I can remember was, a, was like a laundromat where you could wash your clothes and stuff like that. But at the time of going to school, and this was what, 13, 14 years ago, I was, um, I was really inspired by books like The Triple Bottom Line and books more on sustainable business practices. And this is before the rise of everyone talking about you know, purpose and, and stakeholder capitalism. And I just thought, wow, it would be great uh, given my background in music and having uh, released um, LPs and singles and EPs on various indie labels and really getting to understand what they do to just create a, a platform of my own that catered more towards the, the spirit of a lot of, of bands and how they're scrappy outside of work. And many of them have an affinity for camping and the great outdoors. I often think touring is a lot of camping. You get used to the, the minimalist lifestyle. Absolutely. And so that's how the concept came along. And then we always wanted to give back. And so we said in a percentage of sales would go towards um, nonprofit organizations that are dedicated to protecting our parklands like the National Forest Foundation. 
quite built this business plan and, you know, I did quite well in it in school. Then I thought, you know what, I'm going to put a little of my own money towards this thing and give it a go. And no one will tell me if I, I'm, if I am my own boss, how many releases we need to do at what speed we need to move. And I found comfort in, you know, just kind of the taking the long way and the slow way to just building something with purpose from day one with a community and friends that I really adore and just stay at it. And, you know, here we are uh, in 2021 and um, we're about to do two more releases to add to our catalog. And so we're still plugging away and, and, you know, doing our best to staying true to why we started the whole label way back when. Let's come back to that in in, uh, in a while because I do want to go back even further than that to get a little bit of a, a flavor for your own musical upbringing. Um, do you remember your first musical memory? Um, I certainly remember music was always on in the car, my mom's car, my dad's car. Um, my dad always would have the radio on, usually classic rock. My mom was a, a bit more modern, so, you know, kind of m- more, more 80s, new wave and so forth. But music was always on no matter where I went. And it just, it, it was a bug. It got in my head. Neither one of my parents could play an instrument. I was never taught how to play an instrument. I, I, just, I really failed at taking music at school. Um, but I just, I... I was really gravi- gravitating towards towards music, and 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 I actually remember being s- maybe seven years old, um, listening to uh, Van Halen, uh, the the 1984 album "Jump" is the song, you know, dun 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 dun, dun you know, and I remember writing writing it out. Now remember, I don't I don't know how to write. I still don't today. No, my kids know how to write music. I don't know how to write music, so I write it out just writing D-A, 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 in different sizes. Were <laughs> <laughs> you building up in size to the... To oh the, my gosh, I got to the whole page and then seven-year-old me looks back and goes, well, that's just a page full of D-A, 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 yeah. with the melody in my head. And and um, I, I, I wish I would have kept that of just like how how ridiculously beautiful something like that is as a, as a child, you know, just so dedicated to write it out and re- record or, or rewind the tape, listen to it again. Did I get the number of does in there? The bug early, obviously. And it's interesting you are talking about being in the car because uh, you grew up in Southern California, right? So there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of sitting in the car and in, in, in the LA area in particular. Um, yeah. And, and traffic and as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I love the fact that, that you had a different soundtrack depending on which parent's car you were in. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. What was the first album or maybe it was a cassette or a CD that you bought with your own money? Yeah. So I'm old enough to say cassette um, uh, and had a had several cassettes. Um, now, with the caveat of using my own money, I might have to come back to in just a second. So I, I remember going to a lot of record stores on Ventura Boulevard in, in, in the Valley um, and getting cassettes, staring at the sea, the singles, the, the Cure cassette and stuff like that. Loving the Cure, having a lot of the, um, the Cure on cassette. Never really got into the Smiths when I was younger. A lot of skate rock, Thrasher Magazine, skate rock, early Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is, you know, Freaky Styley, Uplift Mofo Party Plan, those albums. Having all that on cassette. 
but I don't think that was my own money. When I, the the first CD would really represent when I had my own money. I actually had a job, and I remember I bought the Pixies Doolittle, and I spun that CD. It's, it was, I only had one, so I had a CD player and one CD, and that was steady rotation all the time. And I would take that CD player in my car because my, my at the time I was driving this 1970 Carmen Ghia and the radio didn't work. So the boom box in my room would just go into the back seat of my car. And guess what we listened to? Pixies Doolittle. It's really uh, hard for people who are perhaps a little bit younger who, who didn't buy CDs in the mid 80s when they first came along or into the 90s to, to understand that you only had one because they were 20 bucks. And and that so a hundred dollar investment, you had five five CDs, and maybe you could make a party out of that. Um, That's right. What about live music concerts? Your first concert? First concert without parents, which sure. I think is an important qualifier. Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. Nice. At a, a veterans hall up in Eureka, California. So up in Humboldt County, and I, I then moved up to Humboldt County with some older friends, two years older than I, absolutely loved it. This is the Tomorrow's People album and just, just still to this day, a beautiful record and very well done. Excellent band. I still remember not understanding what was all the smoke in, in the room um, at, the, at the concert and being passed a tray that I thought was hors d'oeuvres on well, it. We're in Humboldt uh, County as well. Come on. Yeah, up in Humboldt County. I believe they might have been a mushroom of some sort. And thankfully, I was, I had the supervision of my friend who was two years older than me. His older brother, like, immediately stopped the trade. It's like, these kids are going to just stay over here, watch the music, and then I'm taking, taking them out of here. But yeah, that was the first concert without, without parents. <laughs> I had the very good, uh, good fortune a few years ago to host a television show on DirecTV called Guitar Center Sessions. And uh, Ziggy Marley was, was one of the guests. And I mean, first of all, obviously an amazing musician, but somebody who is just so connected to the, uh, to, to, to the ongoing struggles of his people and the mm. people from the Caribbean, but just in general, just a very plugged in guy. Did, did you connect to that part of the experience? Because I know it's part of their concerts as well, or was it just really the music? I, um, I, I still, to this day, I just thought he was so cool in that so every, right? even when he would just say hello and, and how he welcomed the audience, I just thought this he just has this spirit and this this kindness and, and this authenticity and just really genius about him. That's just very welcoming. And I, I love that. But blown away at how he connects through instrument with the other members of his band. That that really very close to the stage that was probably one of the first times i realized wow music is a language they're all communicating each other through these songs but they're improv improving a little bit and they're doing it all through their instruments and they're not all playing the same instrument you know and i just i remember just being in awe of that of of, of how they use their instruments to talk to each other and vibe off each other and really take the songs into you know if they were kind of improving a little bit i thought that was just so cool very magical Earlier on in this conversation, you were talking about not really being very good at music at school, but music has clearly been something that you've not just listened to. Um, you have an instrument. Do you pick up an instrument as a kid? And I still pick it up today. Now I spend a lot of time teaching my kids, but um, the instrument that really clicked with me after failing at clarinet 
I, I just didn't have the pipes and, and I, I, I just don't think I was sophisticated enough to play an instrument like the clarinet, with, which then would graduate onto the sax. Were you at school? Was the clarinet assigned to you or did you actually pick it? I, I think the option then was we, uh, they had a lot of clarinets, a, a couple of trumpets and a couple of saxophones. <laughs> Do you think maybe the clarinet was easier to carry around or something? I, well, cer- I mean, certainly for, <laughs> for, for me, it is a smaller instrument and breaks down. I didn't like listening to music with clarinet. It wasn't what was, you know, the bug. It wasn't what was speaking to me. I found myself always listening to, and this is late 80s, early 90s, more melodic, you call it punk, in a post-rock, but bass-driven Bands. Like, give us a couple of examples. So, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, sure. like, wow, the, the bass is a is the lead instrument, and you know, this is when Flea's wearing the stuffed animal pants, and he's in the Young MC videos. I'm like, this guy's mm-hmm. cool, and he's in Back to the Future too. And so that was for me. You know, first seeing people like Eddie Van Halen as a rock god, rock god, but now you see a bass player as a rock god. Firehose, the same thing. Primus. This is early days of Primus, and. And um, so eventually I, I uh, got my dad to buy, this is true, to buy a used guitar my friend wanted who had a used bass, his bass that I wanted. And, and then so then traded. we traded and then we traded and we, start, we started a band together and that's, that's how it got, got going. And obviously you, you made some music because you alluded to the fact that you'd released stuff on independent labels. I don't really know that much about uh, that part of your background. Tell us a little bit more about that before we sort of resume these, these questions. Yeah, I, um, so I, I played I, so all through junior high, just banging away in a friend's um, uh, uh, bedroom. I mean, actually friends I'm still friends with today and they, they're they still phenomenal musicians and have gone on to do great things. But this is the days, you know, where the drummer's playing on a, a bucket turned upside down, right? Like no one had a drum set. And then as, as I got into high school, I, I started playing with older musicians. I think when I was a sophomore, they were all seniors. And so that just gave me exposure to actually playing clubs in Hollywood. And, and just learning what it's like to take, um, take your, all of your instruments down. This is like at the anti-club is where we played, which is, I don't even know if it's there anymore, but it had deep roots with Black Flag, Chili Peppers played there. So of course I was excited. And then as I got into college, just creating bands and then starting to tour and so forth. And eventually we were, that kind of morphed into a more of a noise rock kind of indie band that, I thought was wonderful because I was actually just playing with my friends and we whole, we just started the band of four of us that I just like to spend time together. And we'd all been in bands that never re- really went anywhere. And we just thought, well, we all want to keep playing and we all really like each other. And it just so happens that's the band that I didn't think would get popular, started to get popular enough for us to tour and start recording and releasing albums. And so then what, that was, what, was, that, what was that band? That band was called The Rum Diary after the Hunter S. Thompson novel before it became a movie. And it's just, we all kind of liked that book too. And we weren't going to fight over a name because we never thought that name would ever go anywhere. And then seven years, almost probably eight, nine years of just constant touring. And we were all working, but just instead of taking vacations, we would just take a couple of weeks off and go on tour. Yeah, we'd go on tour. And I just, I loved that experience of, getting to know these 
cultures of cities from the from the the core of the city to the heart and soul for through music that I'd never been to before and I was with my great friends so it was a lot of fun yeah and great great way to see a little bit of the country oh wonderful and I got so much exposure to just more the business side of of music at least the the, through it through an indie lens wonderful experience what are the albums or artists that you return to. And I'm going to ask this in two different ways. When people ask me what it is about music that I like, I say, well, it depends. I mean, if, if it makes me dance and tap my feet, I like it. And then sometimes it's the lyrics. Sometimes I need to sit down and, and really sort of listen to, to what, what the artist is, is trying to say. So, so the question sort of breaks down into what are the albums or the artists that you return to uh, when you want to dance? And, and the second part of the question is, what are the albums of the artists that you put on when you're feeling perhaps a little melancholy? When I want to dance with, like my se- I have a seven-year-old um, who, he might be a little David Lee Roth for all I know, <laughs> loves, loves 80s hair metal. Loves, loves Van Halen, loves Def Leppard, loves Motley Crue, loves Bon Jovi. Wow. And when he, like it's summertime, so when he gets home from camp and in yeah. the evenings around dinner time, if I want to dance with him, all I do is put on Living on a Prayer. And he starts to like kind of dance up to me and get, get, and he gets into it and that he, he loves it. And he, he can hear the first, there's some organs as that song kind of heats up in the beginning. And within seconds, he looks at me and like, it's go time and um, gets into it. But also for dancing, I'm not afraid to admit, I love yacht rock. I love just that, what a genre of excellent musicianship. And I know it's cheesy and corny, but there's nothing wrong with a little Toto. There's nothing wrong with, with um, that, that whole, you know, some Hall and Oates and, and, and so forth. So I love that stuff too. And that's fun. More modern, I think Bieber's Peaches is a killer song. I love Peaches. I just think it's a great song and that'll get my whole family bouncing around too. Ideally, they don't really learn the lyrics, my little ones, but I think they've already figured <laughs> them out. Sure. Peaches, not but, yeah. exactly kid-friendly, yeah. No, but yeah, it's great. Um, but we'll also put on Janet Jackson, who I think has great dance records. And then what about if you're feeling something uh, a little deeper, a little melancholy, you want to just sort of sit back and hear the music rather than feel it? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. I, I've actually reflected on this recently through the lens of like my COVID soundtrack. And so in the beginning of, of COVID, sheltering in place, really trying to figure out what is going on, reading the news. I was looking at the John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins site every day. I'm like, the spread. I was listening to um, Brian Eno, discreet music. And um, uh, is it soundtrack for airports? Yes. Or, is that right? Yeah, I'll look it up while you're talking. But yeah, soundtrack for airports. Yeah, and he, I think he did another one after that, but it's really th- those earlier records where he's exploring that minimalist instrumental side. Uh, I mean, this is post-Roxy music and so forth, but I was listening to those two albums on steady rotation quite a bit. Music for Films, I think, is one of them. And then there's another Music one. for Films. Maybe it's Music for Airports. There is an album called Music for Airports. I'm not too sure if that's him. Yeah, it is. Ambient. Yeah, kind of a airports. yellow cover. Almost looks like a map. 
Um, I got it. I just, isn't it amazing? I'm talking to you. You're in San Francisco. I'm in LA. You're asking a question and I just found the information. I love technology. The internet wins often. When it works. When it works. <laughs> when it yes. works for good. Yeah. For, for good purposes, like talking about music. Indeed. But his stuff, as you mentioned, is uh, there's a lot of ambient stuff in there. What about any favorite songwriters whose lyrics, you know, get you? Are you familiar with Idols from the UK? Yes. So, so I, I think that band is uh, it's phenomenal on so many levels, but especially the, the lyrics, um, which I think on the, on the surface, it's easy to kind of just dismiss them as like a punky UK post-rock kind of band um, uh, until you actually see not what they're doing, but how they're actually reinventing that genre. And his lyrics, I think, are so positive, so inclusive and have an edginess to them that almost kind of mocks those that are doing harm in the world, even though those are probably a lot of the people that are in, in the audience. So there's a little bit of a tongue, tongue in cheek there, but I think those lyrics are pretty, pretty powerful. And I, I love the positive message behind them and power and humanity and, and so forth. And, and I think all of their albums, including their live one, I just, I love reading those lyrics. It's a band out of uh, Bristol in, in the UK. And interestingly mm. enough, the, the singer's Welsh. Um, and then there's another guy in the band who is from Northern Ireland. The other two guys are English, but based out of, they've been around about 10 or 11 years now, I think. And I, I guess you would call them sort of post-punk, although there's still a little punk going on in, in what they're doing. Yeah, and kind of experimental. But they started to heat up in popularity just before I left. So I was living in London for about four years. And then to, you know, I'll see them in the fall when they're here at the Warfield in the States. But I ha I've never gotten to see them live because it just, it, you know, it's... Oh, you must be so excited that they're going to be touring. I can't wait, I'm taking my 13-year-old. It's going to be amazing. Do you have a favorite artist that never quite made it? You know how sometimes you hear something for the first time and you're like, oh, that's going to be massive. And then it, it isn't. Or, or maybe there's an artist that everybody thinks is going to break through and doesn't. Is there somebody that you've listened to through the years who you come back to and you sort of, God, I don't quite know why they didn't become huge. And are we defining huge as rock stars on the radio well successful well-known that you know you know my mom would know or you know yeah. anybody you, you meet would know somebody who sort of goes mainstream um there's a long list actually of um of, uh just from growing up in bands and touring so fr friends of mine are in a, a local uh, bay area band north bay band called the velveteen um judah josh casey and I, I think it's more by design. Like they just want to keep doing what they want to do and not have to um, deal with, with um, record labels. But I think Judah, Josh, Casey, they're just phenomenal songwriters and they can, and Judah, especially like he can write across so many different genres as well. And just has a, has a knack for it. So way back when, when we were all starting out and this is going back 10, 15 years ago, I thought for sure, wow, I might never see this guy again because he's going to be a huge rock star. And he was a little bit younger than us as well. Right. Um, uh, and then turns out he's continues Judah and with, with the guys, they continue to put out these great albums. And I listened to their, they have a four song album called No Star that end to end, I think is just four of the most brilliant melodic rock pop 
all, I mean, you can't really define uh, the Velveteen by genre, but I still listen to that, the, those songs all, all the time. But they're, they're, they're one where I thought they're going to, they're going to get huge, huge. Well, I'm going to go check them out now because I, I don't know their music. So thanks. Worth a listen. I recently collaborated with Judah on a couple of songs and on an album that I'm working on, which is just bucket list, you know, of, of reconnecting with someone through technology and the internet. And Judah just has that ear and just sends back some, some tracks and it's just magical. And then Josh came down and sang on a bunch of songs as well. So it's, it's, I just think I'm so fortunate to have friends and, and, and people like that in my life. I got a couple of questions left to to get to, but before we do these last couple, I want to just pick up on what you were talking about with uh, the internet and technology and, and music. You know, this um, technology that has completely changed the way that music is made in the last mm. twenty years, uh, and in the last fifteen years, ten in particular, I guess, uh, the way that it's heard. Uh, we now obviously have the opportunity through streaming to listen to pretty much anything that's uh, that's ever been released if it's been made available through through streaming technology. Um, but you know, my uh, my, my uh, uh, music listening these days tends to be done uh, with Spotify or a, a service like that. But I've also started buying vinyl again, and mm-hmm. I started buying vinyl. Um, from independent <clears throat> artists because it makes a difference, right? I mean, if, if I go stream something, the artist gets, you know, a tenth of a penny, maybe sometime. But maybe. if I go to their if I go to their bandcamp page, I can give them 20 bucks and 20 bucks divided by four, it's it's a big difference. Uh, are you still listening to, to music on vinyl? Are you still finding music through uh, streaming services or peer-to-peer? Um, so I subscribe to all of the above. Um, I wouldn't say I'm new school, only digital, um, or old school, only vinyl. I'm, I'm no school on that. I, um, uh, I'm, I'm completely aligned with you. Um, I will go out of my way to buy vinyl, especially from smaller, uh, more up and coming artists. Um, because, uh, that is that it just makes them feel better. Like it, the artist feels good when they're like, we're actually selling tangible records versus, mm-hmm someone streamed me on Spotify that you'll never know. Right. And so there's, there's much more of a tangibility to it. It also, you also, as an artist, you get to hold your final product and you get to push the final product beyond the ears and like, what's the visuals and the the artwork and everything and the complete package. But I, you know, I stream music as as well. It's um, I don't think my home is large enough to have all the records that I, I want to listen to. But you also need to recognize, I think, for any music fans out there, this is a fact. Everything that you could listen to that could be the sweetest ear candy to your ears is not on digital. There's so many great jazz albums that are just not on digital. They may never be on digital. There's so many great bluegrass artists that may never make it to digital and, but, but you pop down to your, you know, I mean, we're fortunate you and I are both in California. So pop down to Amoeba and just flip through those racks and you're going to find those records. And that's probably the only way you're going to get to listen to it. And so I think there's, I, I think we got to be really careful when you just swing to, you know, all you listen to is streaming. Cause what happens there is you're not listening to the full catalog of all this wonderful music that's out there. And it starts to get curated for your ears 
which means maybe your ears don't get to change. And I know mine have over the years. If you would have asked me if I listened to Yacht Rock 20 years ago, I might have <laughs> gotten I might I might have gotten really feisty with you and told you it was all crap. And now I'm like, Pablo Cruz, put it on. Let's hear it. Do you have a, a recent discovery um, that you'd like to share with us for our Sounds of Success playlist, which is on Spotify? So it's got to be something that uh, we, we can find um, on a streaming service. But any band or artist, but they don't have to be new either. It could be somebody that you just discovered who's you know, uh, made mu music in, uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Just anything that's uh, new to you. I, I, um, I, so I'll summarize uh, Four that I mentioned um, here. Um, so definitely check out the Velveteen, um, Sonoma County. Um, a good entry point, in my opinion, to to, to that band is No Star. Um, but before you go into, I don't even know if they have essentials, but before you kind of head into that, like just the Velveteen No Star, I think is worth a listen. Um, uh, I I Idols, listen to Idols. It's a little bit heavier. I think it's brilliant music. Um, I would start with Brutalism. I think that album is just phenomenal. Um, give Yacht Rock a second chance. Um, it might be your parents' music, and maybe you thought <laughs> it was really cheesy, but there's well, nothing give wrong us, with that. Give us a band, because Yacht Rock, is, as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, it spans quite a lot. Roxy Music fits in there, I believe, and Roxy Music, to me, is you know one of the greatest bands ever. On the other side of it, as you mentioned, um, there's uh, you know Toto, which for me... That's that's not my brand of yacht rock. But if you're talking about yacht rock, who? Um, Kenny Loggins. This is it as a song, and then also the duet he does with um, Stevie Nicks. I mean, she's the, she's just the master of duets as well. When you think about what she's done, but her duet with Kenny Loggins, I think uh, "Call Me Friend" is or something. I mean, there's only one duet between Kenny Loggins and Stevie Nicks, and it is just brilliant. Do you have a guilty pleasure musically? Um, just one. Um, I probably buy more vinyl than I should. I've gotten to the point where I do hide it from my my wife. If I can get that, <laughs> if I can keep okay. the package, it, you know, um, just it, it, it's a lot. Um, how, how do you hide, I, how do you hide vinyl packages arriving at your house? I, get it get it up on the shelf as quickly as possible um uh, uh so i that um uh i still buy um more instruments predominantly vintage vintage instruments than than i actually need um meaning i still play the same old ones but it seems like every year i just get that itch and i need to acquire a new vintage instrument which i guess i'm a, i'm definitely a collector slash hoarder when it comes to that stuff so you collect instruments that, that that's interesting do, do you uh do you go looking for things i mean are you somebody who's got yeah i've got to get that 1950 whatever it is and you go searching it out are you one of those guys or are you sort of an impulse buyer i uh well i'm i'm a i'm a sucker for any um through neck bass guitar which means the neck isn't bolted on um, so a Rickenbacker is an example of that. I, the craftsmanship, I just think is the best in class. Um, Martin made a, a limited run of bases like that as well. And so I, if I have, if I'm hunting for something, I'll hunt for that. Like, who is, you know, if I go into a vintage shop, I'll go look at the, the bass guitars and there, are there any through neck bass guitars? 
then I then I start to look for three quarter bass guitars, which is smaller. Um, so you you know uh, what you're looking for. Yeah, um, and then I love old synthesizers too, vintage synths, ARPs, Moogs, um, old Roland synths. I'm actually sitting in a room with four of them right now, because I like to write on them. I uh, I versus using MIDI, I just like to write on an old synth. It's comforting. So you you said you've been working on some music. Do you have something coming out? I do. When um, I don't have a good answer to um, uh, a good friend of mine that's doing a lot of the engineering, mixing, um, uh, and helping me with just overdubbing some tracks has a baby due in August. And so that's kind of like, I've got to finish this thing before August hits because he'll be out of pocket. Um, but it's my solo project that's called The Things of Youth. The first album I did was called Volume One. I'm constantly thinking, should I call this one Volume Two and just be done with it or maybe just mix it up? Mm -hmm. um, but my aim is to finish anywhere from eight to 10 um, new original songs. Well, we'll look for those later on this year, hopefully. It's Absolutely. been really cool talking to you, John. Um, you too, thanks, Nick. Thanks for taking a minute. I, I always like to finish these conversations by asking, um, how are you feeling right, right at this moment? We've just hung out for half an hour talked a little bit about music. I don't know if you're going to go back to work right now, but how are you feeling? How's your day? I feel amazing. I, if I could have a conversation like this every day, I would be, I would be in heaven. Oh. I fundamentally believe music is the international language and it's just so healthy for folks. And so talking about it is always just a complete joy for me. So thank you. Well, John Fee is Senior Vice President and Head of Global Marketing at Salesforce.org. He's also got a record label and an album coming out, hopefully before the end of the year. Great talking to you. You too, Nick. Thank you so much. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.